You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. Um, This summer, May, June, we are walking through the letter of 1 John, and uh, here in July, we'll be returning to Paul's letter to the Romans. But um, this morning, we hit kind of a hinge point in this letter of 1 John. Um, And through the letter, if you've been paying attention, you may have noticed um, John repeats things. Um, he emphasizes them, and then he reemphasizes them, and then he overemphasizes them. Um, one of those specific things in the first half of the letter of First John, um, he uses one word ten times. The word is abide. He keeps coming back to this word, um, keeps putting this exhortation out there, and so, like we've talked about on several instances over the last weeks and months, when we hit words like this in the scriptures and they're repeated over and over again, it probably would be a good thing for us to understand them. Um, Like, what what does it mean to abide? Jesus says it over and over again. Specifically, John is the one who records him saying it. But when, when John says that we are to abide in Christ, he means that we're to remain in him. If that's where we found life, we ought to remain there. That it means to walk with him, to pursue him, to seek him, to follow him. <clears throat> Jesus said, I'm sending you into the world as salt and light. Well, so John says that you and I ought to walk in the light. But as Jesus, as you, if you go into the gospel of Matthew and Jesus is saying these things for the first time, Throughout the Gospels, Jesus also says, and as you're being sent, as you're walking as salt and light, be very, very careful that you don't begin to be seduced by and fall in love with the things of this world. This doesn't mean that we're not to love the people in the world, but the world is going to offer things to us that look like they're going to satisfy our soul when they will not. In fact, they will leave us empty, dry, and dead. And so as Dusty walked through the first part there of 1 John 2 last week, we saw John saying, you can't love the things of this world and love God simultaneously. It just doesn't work. So live for eternity. Live for eternal things. As I said a moment ago, um, this morning we hit a bit of a hinge point in this letter where now what John is saying is because of all of these things, These things, because these things are true, live this way. So look with me, if you will, in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be at the very end of that part. We're going to start in verse 28 as John talks about um, what the evidence of our faith ought to look like. 1 John chapter 2 verse 28, he says, And now, little children... Abide in him. There's 11. That's the 11th time he's used this word. So we are overemphasizing this. Remain in Christ so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So John has said over and over again, abide, abide in him, abide in Christ. And now he says, so that. 
Here's why you need to abide. So that when Christ appears, when he returns, two things. We may have confidence in his coming, but also so that we may not shrink back from him in shame when he returns. I'm a big visual person. It helps me to see something. What do you think it would look like to shrink back from Christ? Well, in, in an effort to maybe get a picture of what this would look like, we've got a short little video here for you to give you maybe an idea. Who did this mess? Who did this? Cody, did you make this mess? Murphy, did you make this mess? Maggie, did you make this mess? Somebody made it. Who made it? Mm. Who made this mess? I think that's a fairly good picture. You guys, at least most of you have, at least visually, you've, you've seen my dog, Samson and Sullivan. Um, there's a small probability that right now they are currently at home doing something that they will get in trouble for when we arrive at home. In fact, 97 to 98% of the time that they get in trouble, it's when we're not there. Now, it doesn't come reckoning until we get home. But, you know, you think about it. That, that one of them is sitting there and going, well, it doesn't look like anybody's here. Uh, I guess I could eat this chocolate. Uh, I guess I could destroy this shoe. As ridiculous as it sounds, John doesn't want that for you and I. John understands that because Christ is not physically here with us at times, when we stop walking in, the, in faith and begin walking in our flesh, that we tend to just think, well, I guess it may be okay right now. But this is why we must remember that he, he sent his spirit to live within us. So John doesn't want us to shrink back in shame. So John is communicating to us here, if we abide in Christ during his absence, then we can be confident of walking in his presence when he returns. No, Christ is not physically with us right now, but he will return. And if we're walking with him now in the spirit, we have confidence not only that he is going to return, but that when he does, we will walk with him. But now, being careful to understand, because none of us know when this return is going to happen, um, we've got to live in expectancy. Jesus addressed this over and over again. If you look for a moment in Matthew 24, in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 42, Jesus said, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his, his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus is not telling a parable or giving advice for us on home security here. This is not about, hey, you should protect your house. Now, that is a good lesson. 
Jesus could have used any other illustration. Um, you don't know when your house might catch on fire, so you should stand ready with a hose. The point is not watch your house. The point is you and I don't know. And so we should live with a heart of expectancy that at any moment the father may say to the son, let's go, go get my people. Back in 1 John, let's read verse 28 again. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So why should we walk in righteousness? Because Christ is coming again. And we want our lives to be worthy when he returns. But now John says, how do we walk in righteousness? You may have missed it if we went through this first too quick. Go back to verse 29. He says, if you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness, what? Has been born of him. How do we practice righteousness. Well, in order to do this, we must be born of him. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, to live and walk in the kingdom of God, you must what? Be born again. See, you and I enter this world spiritually dead in our sin. We need to be born again. We need to be spiritually born, made alive in Christ. In most of his letters, if you've read through the New Testament, you've probably noticed that the Apostle Paul um, is really big on talking about our adoption. Um, and, and this is mere speculation on my point. But if you think about the fact that Paul, Paul did not walk with Christ when Christ was on the earth. Um, and soon after Christ uh, left the earth, Paul began to be one of the most fierce persecutors of the church. He completely rejected Christ, but God met him there on the road to Damascus. He, con he was confronted by Jesus and made alive in Christ. Paul, if anybody had the sense of not being worthy, but still being adopted by God, it was him. But John uses different language. John, I can't find using the word adoption. John just talks about us being children of God. That we are children of God. We belong to Him. We now have His nature. Do we still wrestle and struggle with sin? Yes, we do. But we now have the Spirit of God. We have God's nature moving and growing within us. To put it very simply, when we are born again, when we are born of the Spirit, we begin to act like our Father. If you know my family, um, if you line me and Morgan and Libby and Nathan up, uh, we took a, a picture on the beach there at camp. Um, I've never had our family, you know, together, taking a picture or whatever, and somebody come up to me or Morgan and say, are you sure these are your kids? It's never happened. You can tell there are kids just by looking at them. But what's beginning to happen now is they're both getting older, is that we're beginning to see ourselves 
in and through them, more than just through appearance. Why is this? Well, because in God's miraculous intervention and how he has chosen to create, we got to be part of that, and they have our nature. There are things that I do now that I may be driving down the road, I may be sitting on the sofa or whatever, and I freak out because all of a sudden I realize, oh my gosh, I'm turning into my dad. Some of you have had, and my mom's laughing. Some of y'all have had those moments too. It's because we are not just physically like our parents, we take on their nature. Friends, if you and I are children of God, we begin to take on the nature of our Father. I have zero mercy in me, in my flesh. None. I don't have gentleness. It is only by the grace and the Spirit of God that He has begun to birth those things within me. I'm taking on the nature of my Father. Yes, I am an adopted son, but I am a child of the Most High God. Look in 1 John 3, verse 1. John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we will see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Righteousness, and we need to be very, very careful to understand this, Righteousness is the evidence of the new birth. It's not the cause. You and I were not sitting around one day and thought, you know, that righteousness thing, that looks good. I think I'll start living like that. And so we started working at it and God looked down and said, hey, Brian's giving it his all. I think I'll take Brian. Let's get Brian on our team. Doesn't work that way. I have no righteousness of my own, none. But because Christ is now giving me his righteousness because of faith, because of my belief in what he has done on my behalf. It is that righteousness that is now giving evidence of what God has done within me. Righteousness is evidence of the new birth. Go back to what John says here. If Jesus is righteous and no one is righteous apart from him, this means that anyone and everyone who practices righteousness is born of God. Righteousness is somewhat of a spiritual birthmark, if you will. So John shares with us, what are we? We are children of God. And because of what Christ has done, we are justified. We are made right with God. Jesus is at this moment at the right hand of the Father, interceding and advocating, pleading the case of you and me. My sins are forgiven. I am justified before God. But now I am also being sanctified. I am constantly in the process of Jesus making me more like him. And for some of us, myself included, maybe that process seems to be painfully slow. But Jesus is working in us and through us and on us nonetheless. So what are we? We are children of God. We are justified. 
we are sanctified. But then John starts to give us a glimpse into but what will we be? How is all this going to end? And I love what John says here. He basically says, we know, but we really can't even begin to fathom. We can't wrap our minds around what we're going to be. We are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We, we can't fully grasp it. But then he says this, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we will see him as he is. What John is saying is, folks, we've been justified because of Christ. We are being sanctified in Christ. But the day is going to come when he returns for his children. And it's glorification. Because you and I, all things will be made new. In thinking about this... If his presence is our strength and his return is our hope, then we will walk in purity. John says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If I know that his presence is the only thing that gives me strength, that his return is the thing that gives me hope, then I will walk in purity. I will be sanctified. It will be the evidence that he is moving and working in me and through me. Right now, we are still in this sanctification process, being made more like Christ. But now John turns a corner and he says, but now let me share with you the alternative. Verse 4. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother." So John says Jesus appeared to take away sin. In fact, in him, there is no sin. Jesus came to reconcile us back to the Father. In order to do that, he had to atone for our sins. We've talked about this repeatedly in here, and we will talk about it repeatedly going forward. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus did not just conquer the penalty of sin, he also conquered the power of it. 
Okay, let me repeat that because we need to get it. Jesus did not just conquer and overcome the penalty of our sin, but he overcame the power of it as well. So we no longer have to live as slaves to it. In verses 4 through 10, I hope that you noticed going back to John using these words repeatedly, he uses a word here repeatedly. The word is practice. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning, and he keeps repeating it. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is not of God. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. What he's talking about here, he's describing an ongoing habitual practice. What John is saying is, I'm talking about a person that in their life, this is not the exception, but the rule. They have just continued to walk in sin over and over and over. John's describing a pattern. So all of this brings us to ask this question, how do we find this balance between resting in this assurance of salvation while we're still struggling with sin. I mean, is John saying here it should just be eliminated and completely gone from my life? I don't think so. But he's also saying that it should not be an everyday normal part of my life either. Let me just say to you this morning, let me stop for a moment, hit pause here. Bad theology had me confused about this for a great period of my life. See, I grew up being taught and believing that there are two kinds of Christians. There are carnal Christians and there are Christian Christians. No such thing. You're either a Christian or you're not. You have either been brought from death to life or you have not. Now, there are Christians who have stopped walking with God and stopped being faithful. If you want to find me the biblical idea of carnality, great, we can talk later. It's not there. But now this is why the the letter of Hebrews and, and John even here is saying, be very, very careful that you do not harden your heart to the point that you finally shut God out. There are times that I read something like this Let me get real specific. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. I really think that there are days of our life where as Christ followers, that still ought to strike fear and trepidation within us. Because there are days of my life that I read that and I go, oh my gosh, I've been sinning today. I don't want to be like represented in the column with the devil What am I doing here? But this is why John says it over and over and over. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, whoever has decided, you know what? This is just going to be part of my life. This is who I am. This is what I do. It's all good. That can't happen. It doesn't work that way. This letter is written to answer these questions and to help us fight this battle of faith for assurance. Friends, I assure you that not only John's desire, but moreover, God's desire is that we be fully confident that we have been born again. 
See, when I was 14 and when I was 16 and when I was 18, I did not have confidence in my salvation. I'm 46. I was baptized three times before I was like 20. Why? Because I did not have this assurance. Because my faith was based on how I was living, like that's going to merit my, my worth with God and his love for me. And it doesn't work that way. God says, I love you, I have accepted you, and you are made whole simply because of what my son has done. Now, because of this, through the power of my spirit, I'm going to work within you. If you look in the end of this letter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, John just goes straight to the point. Hey, this is why I wrote this letter to you. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? That you may know that you have eternal life. That you are secure. That nothing can snatch you out of my hand. Jesus said it repeatedly over and over again. But one example is in John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. God desires that his children have confidence and assurance. But now I want you to remember what the reasons, because there are multiple that John was writing this letter. Look at verse 7. Here's this exhortation just sort of stuck in the middle of everything here. John says in chapter 3, verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Remember, he's writing this letter because false teachers are creeping into the churches. And many of those false teachers were Gnostics. And one of the things that the Gnostics were preaching was that there's no way Jesus could have actually come in the flesh. Couldn't have happened. John was confronting the false teachers. They've been saying no way that God came in the flesh. Why were they saying this? Well, they believe that matter and that our flesh was completely and purely evil. And so therefore, there's no way that God would ever inhabit a human body. Well, look here in chapter 4 at what John says about this. He says, beloved, verse 1, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now look at verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. In fact, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. Okay, great. The Gnostics were saying Jesus didn't come in the flesh. He couldn't have come in the flesh. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is, is that that error in their theology was leading them to believe that you can be righteous, but not practice righteousness. That righteousness was some spiritual condition that had no physical manifestation. And so what they would therefore say to you and I is, man, you can be as righteous as you want to. That's not going to affect the way you live. What kind of craziness is that? Well, again, that's where bad theology gets us. 
It takes one step in the wrong direction, and then it just keeps walking. So they're saying you can be righteous, but not practice righteousness. So now you understand why John says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, just as Christ is righteous. John is saying, beware of the false teachers, because they're telling you that you can be righteous and not practice. Let no one deceive you. John makes it very clear here. The evidence of being righteous is practicing righteousness. If you go back to where we started in chapter 2, verse 29, John says, If you know that Christ is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. John Piper sums a lot of this up this way. He says, the reason the new birth inevitably changes the life of sinning, John says, is that when we are born again, God's seed abides in us and we cannot keep on sinning. That's how real the connection between the new birth and daily physical life is. The seed may be the spirit of God or the word of God or the nature of God or all three. Whatever it is specifically, God himself is at work in the new birth so powerfully that we cannot keep on practicing sin. God's seed cannot make peace with a pattern of sinful behavior. Do you understand that? That the spirit of God that has come to live within you, yes, to comfort you, yes, to affirm to you that you are a child of God, but also to convict you of sin and lead you into righteousness. The spirit of God within you is not going to look at this sin and finally go, okay, Brian, I'm okay with that one. You can, you can just let that one go. No big deal. No, God's seed cannot abide with sin. It can't remain with sin. It can't walk with sin. It doesn't work that way. We cannot separate who we are and what we do physically from who we are spiritually. It doesn't work. And so John says, friends, children of the faith, let no one deceive you. How you live your life reflects what you believe and who you're living for. How you and I live our life is going to reflect what we believe, what we believe about God, what we believe about this world, why he has put us here, and it's going to reflect who and what it is that we're living for. And as we already hit on, John says nothing that Jesus had not already said. Live for the eternal things. Living for this kingdom, living for the kingdom of this world reflects a heart that has not been born again to a new one. So are we still going to sin? Are we still going to stumble and fall? Absolutely we are. In fact, John begins this letter in verse 8 by saying, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
Now, I believe that in one sense, John was writing that to people who did not yet know Christ. But remember, this is being written to the church. This is being written to those who claim to be followers of Christ. John is saying, don't think that now just because you're in Christ, you're not going to struggle with sin any longer. The struggle is still going to be there and it's going to be very, very real, which is why in the very next breath, John says, so walk in the light as he is in the light. Are we still going to struggle with sin? Absolutely. Yes, we are. But do we have to? Do we still have to sin? No, we do not. Chapter 2, verse 1. John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And then he goes on in the very next breath and he says, But if you do, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Friends, may we be salt and light in a world that is lost and in darkness. May we practice righteousness as those who have been brought from death to life, those who have been born again. May the evidence of our faith reflect the greatness of our God. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we come and humble our hearts before you. Lord, we pray as David did that you will search us. Search our hearts, Lord. Lord, that you would bring us to a place of repentance. Lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, that we would live and walk as those who know that the name of Jesus Christ is now written over our lives. Lord Jesus, this morning we proclaim together that you are the Prince of Peace. You are King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You are Redeemer and Savior. And you are the only thing worth building our life Upon You are the only thing worth putting our faith and our hope in. Lord, in this moment, we pray that you would be exalted. Lord, that the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight. Let's stand together and worship. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.